We open the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Read together again this familiar and beautiful chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Turn back to verse 5, and our text is the next phrase of verse 5. Charity is not easily provoked. Beloved in the Lord, one by one, we have been making our way through the attitudes and actions of true spirit-wrought love, which is the fruit of God's grace in the life of the believer. And as we examine these attitudes and actions of love one by one, we are seeing what love really is. We come to the next part of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, which has a somewhat different focus, though not entirely, than some or many of the preceding actions of love. Many of the actions that we've looked at already set before us how love takes action, what love looks like in action, but our text, Charity is Not Easily Provoked, focuses on how love reacts. The kind of reaction love does not have, and the kind of reaction love does have, when confronted with adversity, when confronted with unpleasant circumstances or persons in this life. Our text describes, us, describes for us one of the important characteristics of love as it reacts to things I don't like. Love is not easily provoked. The text here addresses 
anger. Anger. And the point of the text is that one whose heart is full of love and one whose mind and actions and words are governed by that love, that person, as he or she responds to adversity or responds to difficult people or responds to unpleasant realities in life, is going to be a person who is not quickly angry, who does not quickly have a flare of temper and lash out in that anger. And so, as with all of these actions and attitudes of love, our text gives us pointed instruction that puts its finger right upon a sore spot of our sinful nature because anger is something every person struggles with. It's a reality of life. But it's something that our sinful nature loves to have a heyday with and easily does. And so let us yield ourselves to the pointed instruction and application of this text and not adopt a defensive posture against the word of God, but allow this word of God to search our hearts and to touch us where we need to be touched, where we need to be pricked. Where in your life and mine do we wrestle with anger? Let's see it for what it is. It's a lack of love. It's a sinful failure to live out of love. Is there a pattern of anger in your life or mine? Let's see that and call it for what it is. A struggle with indwelling sin. Indwelling sin which is crippling to the spiritual life, dishonoring to God, and harmful to the neighbor. Let the text point those things out. Let it prick us. Let it humble us. Let it move us to repentance. Let it drive us to Jesus Christ, who is not our wrathful Savior, but our wrath-bearing Savior. Let us find forgiveness in Him. Let us find renewal in Him. And by His power, change where God's Word calls us to change. And walk in that more excellent way of love, which is not easily provoked. Our theme is love does not quickly get angry. We're first going to look at the meaning, the basic meaning of the text, then enter into the calling that is implied in this text, and then finally the powerful reasons we have to heed this text. Charity is not easily provoked. What does that mean? Well, the word provoked in our text literally means to be sharpened. Think of the sharpening of a knife. Love is not easily sharpened. And the word picture here is this. The things that grind on us ought not quickly to give us a cutting edge. You think of a stone a sharpening stone that is used to wet or to sharpen the edge of a knife. You grind that stone against the knife blade and and quickly the knife blade comes to a, a very sharp edge. Love and the person in whose heart love prevails is not quickly sharpened so that we lash out and cut, is not quickly sharpened by the things and the persons that grind upon us. 
Put it another way, love is not irritable. Love is not quickly roused to anger, and the person in whose heart love rules does not quickly lash out with angry, hurtful words or actions. Anger. Anger is the sharpening of our tongues, our actions, so that when something grinds upon us or bothers us, we lash out with a cutting edge. It's difficult to define anger, but we all know it when we feel it in ourselves, when we see it. Anger is simply a strong passion. It's a strong feeling of displeasure at a person or a circumstance on account of real or perceived wrong or disadvantage that that person or circumstance has brought into our lives. Anger rises in the heart. It's it's a passion of the heart, but it quickly translates into action of harsh words and hurtful actions, just as all passions of the heart don't want to just stay inside, but want to come out. Anger always wants to come out. Anger is not a thing content to sit and do nothing. Anger wants to come out, and anger wants to go on the attack. Anger, when it comes out, manifests itself in various ways. There can be the bomb form of anger. Anger that is explosive, an explosive response to something you're unhappy about. It can burst out in yelling, in cutting words, in hypercriticism, and even in its extreme form, violence. Or anger can be the repeated scathing words towards someone that really rubs you wrong Scathing words which can start a wildfire that quickly gets out of control. It can't be stopped. It spreads. Indeed, anger has a tendency to spread. It spreads through our own souls, fouling our moods. It spreads through our own souls, affecting our actions, not only towards one that we harbor anger against, but towards others who are in our lives. Anger makes irritable. Anger gives a cutting edge. And when anger reigns in the heart, we often don't control against whom we deploy that cutting edge. Anger sharpens the soul, the words, the actions which love ought to soften. Sometimes anger can be like simmering coals. It doesn't burst out explosively, but stays there simmering, burning. In fact, often what is behind a cold shoulder or an icy glare is in fact a simmering heart. Ultimately, anger manifests itself by seeking to get back at someone. So why do we get angry? Well, much of our anger anger boils down to this. Much of it boils down to this. I didn't get my way. Or someone got in my way. Daily frustrations of life that grind on us. Anything that inconveniences us or denies me what my will is. Circumstances outside of my control. The car breaks down. Why now? Of all times, why now? And so easily this passion arises in our heart. We get short with other people. That cutting edge quickly shows itself. You're in a rush. Go to the store. And the shelf is empty. Just the part that has the thing that I came to the store for, for some reason it's gone. Anger, anger. Or you get 
to your vacation locale and the weather turns sour and you end up stewing in a foul mood and you have biting words for your fellow vacationers not because of anything they've done but because you're upset at the weather. Forgetting the God who sent the weather. Or other people don't give us our way, don't see it our way, get in our way, disagree with us, don't meet our expectations. The kid did that again? My spouse didn't give me a hand with this? My coworker is such a pain, he doesn't get it, he gets in my way, he doesn't fulfill his tasks. So many things can be the occasion for anger to rise in our hearts. And that's important, the occasion, the occasion. We mustn't say, those things made me angry such that I had no choice but to respond the way I did. No, anger is a passion that arises in the heart, but the Word of God calls us to handle it rightly. Handle it rightly. And so we see that much of our anger, which focuses on not getting my way or somebody getting in my way, much of that anger is self-centered. Self-centered. And that really gets at the heart of much of human anger. It's self-centered. Notice, and this is intentional, What comes right before our text? Love is not easily provoked. The thing right before it is, love seeketh not her own. There's a point being made in the very arrangement of these characteristics of love. When love is seeking, or when someone is seeking his own, he is going to be easily provoked. Often at the heart of our anger is selfishness, seeking mine, a me focus. And thus that person angers me because they get in my way. They deprive me of what I want. They intrude upon my rights. They step into my territory. They bother me. They inconvenience me. They in some way prevent me from getting what I want. And that makes me mad. Anger is... So often me-focused. But now, I say much of our anger is self-seeking. Much. Not necessarily all, because there is such a thing as righteous anger, which we will talk about later. But we have to recognize that the vast majority of the Bible's instruction about anger is negative, a calling to put off anger. And that fact shows us that much of our anger is not of that righteous variety. When the store shelf is found bare, when the traffic is too slow, we must remember God's providence made it that way. And a flare of anger and an acting out on anger in that moment is saying something to God. It's, I don't accept your providence. When my spouse is inconsiderate in my eyes because he's not helping me, she's not helping me, and anger arises in my heart, what's the real reason? Is it me-centered? Is my first thought, well, why? Maybe... Maybe there's a reason. Maybe he or she's busy with something else. Maybe, maybe he or she just didn't notice. It was an oversight. But how often our first response is anger because now the task is more difficult for me. This is making my life 
more challenging. This is more unpleasant for me, and so anger arises. And when we really look at it, it's, I'm not getting my way. I'm not getting my way. Biblical examples. Think of the first murder, Cain. Genesis 4, verse 5. Genesis 4, verse 5. But Cain, but unto Cain and to his offering, God, he, God had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. Cain felt very justified in his anger. He felt wronged. But what was really the problem? He sought his own. He disobeyed God. He brought the works of his hands and presented them to God and expected God to give him high praise for those works of his hands. And when God did not accept his offering, Cain was wroth. But he didn't ask the question, why? What's the reason for this? He became angry and stewed in that anger and eventually lashed out against God and his brother. Or another example, which shows us how pride can stand behind our anger so very easily. In 2 Kings 5, verses 11 and 12. 2 Kings 5, verses 11 and 12. Here we find the history of the, the Syrian general, Naaman, who comes to Israel seeking healing for his leprosy. And he comes to the house of Elisha. You know, you know what Elisha told Naaman to do? Go to the Jordan River and wash seven times. And 2 Kings 5, verses 11 and 12 tell us Naaman's response. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he, and that's Elisha, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? And he turned away and went away in a rage. Naaman's thinking is this. I'm an important man. I'm a general of the king of Syria. And I come and Elisha doesn't even come and see me. He doesn't do something special or spectacular. But he tells me to go wash in the filthy Jordan River. A man like me? Expected to stoop that low? Come on, Elisha, show some respect to me. There is pride. And Elisha's instructions ruffled Naaman's pride. And anger flared up. Looking at these two examples, if if we're honest, we we see something of our own hearts in these men, do we not? How easily anger arises because we're seeking my way. Or something ruffles my pride. But the teaching of the text is that love, true love, is not easily provoked. To put it positively, the heart that is full of love will not be quickly or easily angered. And will hold itself back from lashing out in anger. And it should be clear why. Now that we've looked at love or rather we've looked at anger and how much of our anger is me-centered, we see how that runs completely opposite to the nature of true Christian love. Love seeketh not her own, but anger is all about my own. Anger seeks the opposite thing that love seeks. Love is that committed pursuit of the true good of another person. But now... When anger takes hold of us, 
what are you really seeking for that person who is the object of your anger? When anger takes hold, what do you really want for them? You see, the thinking of anger is the exact opposite of love. Love pursues the true good of the other person, but this is how anger thinks. I'll feel better if they're hurt. I will feel better if something bad befalls them. I will feel better if I can somehow get back at them. Love desires to bless, and love finds satisfaction in the blessing of another, but anger desires to hurt and looks for satisfaction in the infliction of hurt. Anger and the psychology of anger, if you can put it that way, the thinking, the, the thinking process of anger is the complete opposite of love. That's why love cannot be quickly or easily provoked. That's why, as our catechism instructs us, anger is one of the roots of murder. And that's why God accounts it as murder. Because anger seeks to harm in one way or another. And thus it is not the God-glorifying reaction to adversity or an unpleasant circumstance or an unpleasant person in my life. Love, love overcomes and overpowers that anger, quells it, quells it with the cooling water of God's word. Love takes the focus off me and the fact that I'm not getting my way and points me back to God and reminds me God is getting his way. And I put my trust in him that his way is best. When love reigns in the heart, it rips my eyes off of the fact that I haven't gotten my way in this thing or that thing and puts my eyes back where they belong. God, his glory, and the greatest good of pleasing him. Sometimes we have to simply rest in that thought that God has put this adverse circumstance in my life or this difficult person in my life to give me an opportunity to glorify him by responding rightly and in a Christ-like way. Was that not Jesus' life? Think about Jesus' ministry and the people God put in Jesus' life. Just the disciples, how aggravating, how irritating those people must have been to our perfect Lord. And yet, do we read of him lashing out in anger? No, part of, G- part of Jesus' perfect obedience by which we are saved was that he loved his own with an anger that was slow, or with a, with a love that was slow to anger. He was not easily provoked. He was not me-focused, but God-focused and neighbor-focused. Well, the last thing that I want to touch on in the first point is that matter of righteous anger mentioned earlier. Much of our anger is sinful anger. The Bible is clear about that. But what about righteous anger? That is anger that is in accord with God's word. Is there such a thing? Or is anger always inherently and automatically sinful? Well, the Bible makes clear that although much of our anger is wrong, there is such a thing 
as righteous anger. Anger that is not necessarily sinful in character, but in harmony with God's will. And this can be proved from a number of passages and concepts in the scripture. To start, God's anger. God has anger. And his anger is a righteous anger. God's anger is not a character flaw. God's anger is not a failure for God to love. But God's anger is completely in harmony with his love. In fact, God's anger is a facet of his holiness. God has anger precisely because God is good and he cannot abide evil. And God's anger, God's wrath, is the reaction, the response of his holiness when it comes into contact with sin and with evil. God is a holy God and yes, he is forbearing. But God is a God who is provoked to just wrath by the sins of mankind and by the evil that humankind and Satan and his host perpetrates. And God would not be good if he did not have his righteous anger. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how Jesus is portrayed in the Gospels. Now, the point was made a moment ago that Jesus is not often angry. You read about Jesus in the Gospels. It's not very often that you find him angry. And that's instructive. It shows us that the Christian life should not be characterized by frequent anger. Nonetheless, there are instances, powerful instances in the Gospels, where Jesus was angry. And that was not sin. The perfectly righteous Son of God experienced anger. Let me point out a couple of examples. The first is in Mark 3, verse 5. In context, Mark 3, Jesus is in a synagogue. And there in the synagogue is a man with a withered hand. And the scribes and the Pharisees, those self-righteous doctors of the law, watch Jesus to see what he will do. And Jesus perceives their hearts. The wickedness of these men. They have no care for this man with the withered hand. They are just looking for opportunity to try to ensnare Jesus. And Mark 3 verse 5 says this, And when he... Jesus looked, had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Jesus had a righteous anger at the hardness of heart, that evil that he confronted in those wicked leaders of the people who were destroying the sheep, who were self-righteous before the face of God. Who had no care for this withered for this man with the withered hand in the synagogue. There's an example of righteous anger and where righteous anger is appropriate. Perhaps the example you think of right away is Jesus cleansing the temple. There, Jesus was righteously angry because of the misuse of his father's house, the turning of it into a den of robbers. And so he drove out the buyers and the sellers. The zeal of God's house ate him up. Righteous anger. One last example in Acts 17 verse 16. And now we have an example of the Apostle Paul experiencing righteous anger. And this is an important example because it shows that even fallen sinful human beings such as you and me and the Apostle Paul can at times experience righteous anger even though we have to be on guard because often, if not most of our anger is 
sinful in character. But yet here we read of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, verse 16. Now, when, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. And there, spirit stirred, stirred in him, that's the same word as we have in our text. His spirit was sharpened in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Paul looks on Athens, this city that is renowned for its wisdom, for its philosophy, for its culture, and he sees a city steeped in darkness and his soul is stirred. There's a range of emotions that he felt. He felt sadness. He felt dismay, undoubtedly, seeing this darkness, but also a righteous anger that the glory of God was being taken from him and given to these dumb idols. And anger, even, at the widespread idolatry that held the city's populace in its bondage. Here we see that righteous anger that was focused on God and the neighbor rather than self. And that gets us to see what righteous anger really is and how it is distinguished from sinful anger. Righteous anger arises from the accurate perception of evil and sin and the harm that it does. Righteous anger is aggrieved because God and his holy will has been violated. There's the crucial difference. So so often our anger is me-centered, entirely me-centered. I didn't get my way. That's the characteristic of sinful anger. But characteristic of righteous anger is God's glory was tarnished. God's will was violated. God's name was dragged through the mud. That, That was Paul's concern. That's why Jesus, in righteous anger, cleansed the temple. As God's reborn children, we have the mind of Christ by grace. Our affections are being renewed so that they're like our fathers. That means Christians are not indifferent to evil. We're not indifferent to the suffering that evil causes. We're aggrieved by evil. We ought to hate sin and evil. There is a righteous anger that arises from the accurate perception of evil and the harm that it has caused. You look back at Matthew 3 verse 5 and Jesus' anger towards the Pharisees. That's what was at the heart of it. Jesus wasn't first of all concerned about him and how he looked and how bad it looked in the eyes of the people that the leaders of the people were against him. Jesus' concern was for the glory of God and for this poor man with the withered hand. It was God-centered, neighbor-focused, not me and my way. So righteous anger, righteous anger is God-focused. Righteous anger arrives from an accurate perception of evil and the harm that evil does. That righteous anger then behaves in a different way. Righteous anger is not a flare of temper. Jesus, even when he was very forceful in cleansing the the temple, did not lose his temper. He did not act in an out-of-control way. He did not explode. He did not take that whip of cords and start beating the people. He was controlled, even when he was most forceful for the glory of God and the good of his neighbor. And that's righteous anger. Righteous anger does not adopt the mentality of sinful anger that I'm going to feel better if I can hurt someone. Righteous anger 
fits with true love that is pursuing true good. And righteous anger will not give in to passion such that it forsakes that goal of the true good of my neighbor and the glory of God. And thus, righteous anger is not out of control. It does not explode. It does not seek to harm and do damage. But when righteous anger is channeled in the proper way, it acts constructively. Just as Jesus did. He healed that man with the withered hand. What did Paul do when his soul was sharpened as he saw Athens given over to idolatry? He didn't lead a riot in the streets, slay the idolaters, burn down Athens' temples. He went to Mars Hill and powerfully, directly, sharply, yet lovingly preached the gospel and called men to faith and repentance. In righteous anger, he handled it in a God-glorifying way and acted in a good, constructive manner. That's the instruction for us. And there's the caution too. Righteous anger can be a reality. Something we experience as God's people when God's name is dragged through the mud. We feel anger about that. For a neighbor who has been hurt. When a precious lamb has been vilely and violently abused. Righteous anger is a proper response to that. When horrific evil takes place that destroys families, righteous anger is a proper response. But, the calling of the word of God is be careful. Because righteous anger is quickly grabbed hold of by our sinful nature, which wants to morph it into sinful anger. And that's a caution we must hear. While righteous anger is a proper feeling in the face of great evil, righteous evil A righteous anger is easily hijacked by the sinful nature. So that prompted by that righteous anger, we adopt methods and means that are contrary to the word of God. The fact that we feel a certain righteous anger does not give us justification or license to throw the commandments of God to the wind. That's a danger. That's a danger. Righteous anger must act righteously if it is to remain righteous. So that's the meaning of the text. Love is not easily provoked. What's our calling? What's our calling? Simply put, our calling is to put off anger. To put off every form of sinful anger which is most of our anger. That's implied in the text. The whole text sets before us the more excellent way. This is God's calling for his people. Love. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And now our text tells us this is part of what that love looks like. Love is not easily provoked. Love does not quickly get angry. The will of God for your life and for my life is don't be an angry individual. Put off anger. When anger arises, don't lash out in anger, but subdue it. Put it off. For anger is one of the works of the flesh that we must mortify. Consider, for example, Ephesians 4, verse 31, which says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's the calling of the text. 
So to unpack that calling, I want to bring out several applications. How do we put off anger? Well, in the first place, and this is foundational, the calling of this text is be slow to anger. Resist it when it flares up and hold it back. Do not act on it quickly. That's our default response when we come into contact with something we don't like, something that bothers us, something that grinds on us like a wetting stone, like a sharpening stone. By default, we get sharp. But the counsel of the scripture is, be slow to anger. Problems, conflicts in our relationships, in our homes, can be nipped in the bud if we're slow to anger. But if we're quick to anger, those conflicts will be quick to escalate. And often conflicts become serious problems precisely because of a failure at this first step. Someone says something or does something that offends you and you quickly fire back a sharp retort which angers them and they fire back and before you know it, you're in each other's face. Ask yourself, because the scriptures are real to life, ask yourself, when has getting angry ever fixed something? When has yelling at your spouse, your friend, your child ever led to the harmonious resolution of your disagreement that you want? About as often as you've successfully extinguished fire with gasoline. Never. Never. That's the success rate of quick anger in solving problems. And yet, we do it over and over and over, do we not? Because that's our natural response and that's what gratifies me. That's what's easiest when we're self-focused, when we're proud, when we're focused on my way. Someone disagrees, someone stands in my way, someone does me wrong, someone bothers me, quick to anger. But let this wisdom of the scriptures sink into our hearts this morning, beloved. So many of our big problems, our big fights that leave relationships damaged, could be stopped, solved, by slowness to anger. Or a soft answer. Yes, that's hard. It's hard because it means denying myself. I'm right. My way is the correct way. You've offended me. We want to insist on our rights and on our being right, but that doesn't work. We have to deny ourselves rather than assert ourselves and humbly take ownership of where we have done wrong. Yes, that takes humility, and that's why we don't want to do it, because when that person's wronged me, or when that person drives me nuts, the last thing I want to do is humble myself before them. And yet, when that problem escalates and escalates and escalates, what's, what's really driving it? Me, my way. Slowness to anger. Slowness to anger. That's 
Something the scriptures emphasize so often. In fact, one of the things the Bible emphasizes most often with regard to anger is be slow. Proverbs 14 verse 17. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So often, grievous words are our first response, and it just stirs, stirs things up. Proverbs 15.18, a wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of Of fools. That's Jesus talking. Proverbs 8. Who is wisdom? Wisdom is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' word to his people. Be slow. Slow. To anger. Love is slow to anger. Because love rips its eyes off that thing that bothers me. Or has offended me that I want to fixate on. And glues my eyes to God. To Jesus. To the good of my neighbor. Love is slow to anger. But now secondly. In connection with that. Love is not only slow to anger. But love is quick to set anger aside. That's where quickness belongs. Quickness belongs in putting away anger, subduing it, not holding on to it for a long time. Not harboring it. Not continually stoking that fire inside of me. Being quick to let it go. Ephesians 4 verse 26 is instructive in this regard. Ephesians 4 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now notice here, the command is not be angry, but rather be angry simply recognizes that reality. We are going to experience anger. You cannot escape that emotion. It's going to happen. But now, when you experience anger, the calling is handle it rightly. Handle it rightly. Part of handling it rightly is being quick to subdue it and put it off. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let your anger last longer than the day. Because when you go to sleep at night, your anger is not going to go asleep. And anger harbored in the heart never sits sits there and stays the same, but it festers, it ferments, it grows, and it burns you up on the inside. It breeds sin like rabbits, and it's going to burn other people too. So Paul counsels, the Spirit counsels, don't hold on to it. Don't feed it. Don't nurture it. Don't leave it unresolved overnight. Deal with it quickly. Address matters swiftly with those you're at odds with before the barriers get taller, the walls get thicker, and the offense gets deeper with each passing day. You see that in Jesus' own behavior. When he had righteous anger, he acted biblically quickly. So when we harbor anger in our hearts, it can have a destructive effect. We need to be aware of that. It eats away at us from the inside. It gets in the way of expressing love toward other people. When anger is constantly simmering there, it makes you prone to act sharply towards others because you're constantly being sharpened by it. And even if you don't intend it, you're going to end up hurting a lot of people. Anger harbored in the heart. 
leads to breakdown of relationships. You can see this in marriage when anger isn't dealt with and it just simmers there. Husband and wife over time can become so embittered against each other and their problems so complicated and convoluted that they can't stand each other but can't fully explain why. Because anger has been given way. And many, many sons have been allowed to set upon that anger. And so an important practice for us as families, as husbands and wives, as parents, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Make it a family practice. We don't get to go to bed until we've resolved, or at least positively addressed, any issue that has caused anger in our family. We don't get to go to bed until that's resolved. Because we take this seriously. Anger harbored in the heart brings ruin. Love, love in its very nature is quick to quell anger. Love, love doesn't want that hurt. Nothing offends love more than the thought of that continued enmity simmering there. Love wants to throw itself into the resolution of those problems and pour the cool soothing water upon that fiery anger. Let us be slow to anger, quick to let it go. Third, the calling of the text is to exercise the fruit of the spirit of self-control and self-restraint. As spirit-indwelt believers, we're going to experience anger, but we don't have to let it blow up, let it come out in all sorts of wrong ways. We have the spirit Self-control. We don't have to sin anymore. We are not animals who can only act on instinct. And we are no longer spiritually dead children of wrath who can only sin because we are slaves to sin. We have the quickening spirit. And by the grace of God, we are able to put off anger and we are able to exercise self-control. That's part of our office of believer. As believers, we are kings under Christ. Called to rule by the word of God. And the first part of that rule is ruling ourselves and our own passions by the word of God. Self-control. We have to understand that self-control is an expression of love toward God. I love God by restraining my passions and keeping them in check. It's love for the neighbor. I don't want to injure my neighbor by swinging my passions around like a sharp blade. I exercise control. The same way that I exercise careful self-control when I'm using a kitchen knife and chopping those vegetables at the counter, I don't swing that thing around carelessly because I know the danger of it. Likewise with anger. I exercise self-restraint because I know the danger of sharp wrath. Fourth, Exercise watchfulness over your own heart and over your own responses to people and problems in your life. A Christian is to be a watchful person. How often does the Bible say, watch and pray? Watch for Christ's coming, but part of watching is watching over our own hearts, over our own lives. One of the greatest services that we can render to the devil is by not searching our own hearts and lives. We make his job that much easier 
We make ourselves that much easier to manipulate and deceive when we don't ponder our own hearts or the path that our feet are walking. When we don't pay attention to ourselves, what's going to happen is we're going to fall into the ruts of our sinful nature. Because that's the path of least resistance. And so the Christian life, by the power of the Spirit, is a life of self-examination and watchfulness. When I get angry, why? Pause. Why? What's going on in my heart right now? What do I want to say? What do I want to do? Why? What's behind it? Is it a committed pursuit of my neighbor's good and the glory of God that's behind what I want to say right now? If not, what do I do with that anger? Put it off by the word of God. If we're not watchful of ourselves, our sinful nature is going to have the heyday that it wants. And anger is a favorite thing of the sinful nature. Fifth, calling of the text is call anger what it is most of the time. Failure to love, not walking the more excellent way, violation of the two great commandments. Let's be humbled by that and repent of our anger wherever we see it in our lives. Anger should be a prime target in our spiritual warfare of daily conversion. A stronghold of sin that is to be torn down wherever we find it. Called to repent of our outbursts of anger or our patterns of anger. And and, and truly repent. Repentance, Repentance isn't saying sorry and then being angry tomorrow morning. Repentance is genuine sorrow over sin because it's offended God and hurt my neighbor. Genuine sorrow over sin that translates into real action. Repentance always brings change of life. And if there isn't change, there hasn't been repentance. Someone that we're regularly angry with. Someone we've lashed out against in anger. That's our calling. Apologize to them. Change. Change. Walk in a new way for the glory of God and for the good of the neighbor. And love says, I want to do that. Love seeks peace and ensues it. Now finally, by way of application, I want to come back to the subject of righteous anger. What's our calling with regard to righteous anger? Because that's a reality. And our calling here is to handle it according to God's word. Even righteous anger, we have to be careful that we do not dwell upon it. Even when we have legitimately been aggrieved, it's very tempting to let it consume us. And there's a danger in that. Because sin easily hijacks anger. Back to Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 27. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. And the idea there is, don't give the devil room to do his work in your life. And when you hold on to anger, you're you're giving him a big room. You're giving him a lot to work with. Don't give place to him. Don't let him have an advantage over you. And so even in the case of righteous anger, don't let that anger take control. Don't harbor it and let it fester because very easily the devil's going to come. He's an opportunist and he wants to take that righteous anger and turn it into sinful anger. 
It's so easy for that to happen. Think of Moses. There's an example. Moses, from a certain point of view, it was very understandable how irritated he got with the people of Israel. Their constant rebellion against God, their murmuring. When Moses struck the rock, he gave in to anger in a sinful way. Though you, may, though you can say, Moses had some legitimate grievances with the people. Yet he acted out in anger in a sinful way when he struck the rock. We have to be careful stewards of those feelings of righteous anger. And when they're there, we must be diligent to channel them into positive action. That is in submission to God's word and in harmony with God's word. And not give in to the temptation that because I'm angry and because I have a good cause, I can let the other commandments of God kind of go by the wayside. No, righteous anger to stay righteous must only act righteously. That is in harmony with the rest of God's commandments. That makes an important point. Righteous anger is a reality. Christians are not indifferent to evil. And so the application is not, well, if you see evil, just do nothing. Just tolerate it. Just let it be there. Push down anger and ignore the evil. No. Look at Paul and Jesus again. They had righteous anger, but instead of acting out sinfully, they took righteous actions. Jesus healed that poor man and instructed the people. Paul went up to Mars Hill and preached powerfully and persuaded by the power of the Spirit. And souls were saved. That's the proper way to act on righteous anger. Not by giving into it, not by harboring it, not by acting out sinfully, but taking righteous actions in accordance with God's word to address the evil as much as you can. Very important text to remember. Romans 12 verse 21. This is the Christian's battle tactic. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Be not overcome by evil. That means resist evil. Fight against evil. Overcome that evil. But don't overcome evil with yet more evil. Not with evil's methods or means, but overcome evil with good. And love guides us in that Christian battle tactic. Because love is seeking the good of the neighbor and the glory of God. One last thing in that regard. In this fallen and broken world, there are many evils that seem to go without justice. That grieves us. That saddens us. There's even righteous anger over that. Sometimes we have to give that into the hands of God and trust him. Look at Jesus. As 1 Peter 2 verses 23 says, Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. No evil will go unredressed. And even those great injustices and evils in this world that seem to go without redress, they will one day be dealt with justly. Let us trust God. And trust the one who does judge righteously. Well, now we finish with the reasons. What are the reasons for us to heed this word, love is not easily provoked? 
There's two categories of reasons. There's first the objective reasons why we are able to heed this calling. And then the subjective ones. That is the motivations we have to listen to this Bible verse. The objective reason is simply salvation in Christ. That's why we are to heed this text and why we can heed this text. We are saved in Jesus Christ. We were born children of wrath. By nature, justly the objects of God's righteous anger for our original and actual sins against the most high majesty of God, including all of our sinful anger. That's made us worthy of perishing under the just wrath of God. That's part of what hell is. It's the suffering of the righteous wrath of God against sin. But this is the good news of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, whose portrait is painted here, came to save us from our sins, and Jesus was not an angry Savior, but a Savior of saving love, whose love was not easily provoked. In pure grace, God set his love upon us, love which marvelously turns his righteous anger away from us. God has provided for the satisfaction of his own justice and the appeasement of his own righteous wrath against sin through the gift of Jesus Christ, our wrath bearer. Jesus is our sin bearer. He takes our sin, our guilt, in order that he may be our wrath bearer, that he might bear the just wrath and punishment our sins deserve to take it away from us. That was the cross. Willingly. In his self-giving love committed to our eternal salvation, he bore that wrath for us so that it's gone, gone from us. That's his love for us poor sinners. And now you have his spirit in you, applying all of those blessings to you. Text says, be not angry. And the believer says, I don't want to be angry. And I don't have to be angry. I can fight against anger by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that gets to the subjective reason what motivates us to heed this calling. When we think about what Christ has done for us, that's the motivation. Christ saved me, a child of wrath. How can I go on living like a child of wrath anymore? There's no more powerful motive than that. I want to glorify the God of my salvation, the Savior who saved me. I want to be thankful to him. I want a life conformed to his image. And part of that life conformed to his image is a life that is not full of anger and wrath. Think about what Christ has done for you. And that quells anger. And so the gospel is you're forgiven, all who believe in Jesus Christ. That quiets the conscience because we've seen the sin of our anger. You're empowered by the Spirit to walk in a new way. Now go, be angry no more. Love Christ as he loved you. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this penetrating word that strikes us, the heart of our sinful nature. We've seen our proneness to be angry. Strengthen us by thy spirit to put off sinful anger. And when we feel righteous anger, to act on it rightly for the glory of thee and the good of our neighbor. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.